mean, we're under contract. We'll be closing here in a couple of weeks, just shy of 46 million. So we'll deliver, you know, almost 20 million gain in 18 months on that asset. Welcome to How to Buy Giant Apartment Buildings, the number one show about growing your family's wealth with apartment building investments. Now, here's your host, Mark Allen Kenny. Hey, everybody. Welcome to How to Buy Giant Apartment Buildings. I'm Mark Allen Kenny. Our guest today is Sam Rust. How are you doing today, Sam? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for having me, Mark. Awesome. Thank you for being here. Sam is a managing partner at LifeBridge Capital and has been active in commercial real estate since 2017. He has led the acquisition of properties across Colorado and Idaho with a value of over $125 million. So Sam, thank you again for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Could you tell the listeners just a little bit more about your background and how you got started in this business? Certainly, Mark. So I uh, grew up in Idaho, moved to Salt Lake, and now live in Denver. So I've kind of done a a little bit of a Western tour, which informs the markets that we invest in. But my journey into commercial real estate is not all that unique. Um, Started by reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I think that's the Bible of real estate investing. Kind of changes how you see the world. I was working for a family business in B2B sales. So I was on the the outside sales business development track. This would have been in 2017 and felt like I had capacity to go try some new things on the side. I wasn't looking to leave the family business, really enjoyed that career. I still do a little bit of consulting on the side for that business, but uh, took some capital that I had. We had bought into the Denver market back in 2014 and we'd appreciate it. So we decided to refinance our home, pull some cash out and see if we could figure out a way to deploy it. I mean, I was originally looking for a way to invest money and that a way that would use my skill sets that I developed in project management and in building relationships with people and some of my analytical skills in putting together proposals and evaluating contracts and things like that. And I wanted to use those skills to impact the investment. So I wasn't looking for something passive and I wasn't sure what that would be. So I started looking at you know, different like active stock trading strategies and real estate. And for obvious reasons, real estate kind of rose to the forefront, but there's so many different ways that you can make money in real estate. It all depends sure. on how much time you're willing to put in, what kind of connections you have, your skill set. So I started listening to podcasts and reading books. I really enjoy the process of self-development and, and educating myself. And so just started intaking a ton of different content. I think I read like 25 books in a couple of months, like a three-month period, just really trying to consume as much as I could to figure out what was interesting to me. And a bunch of podcasts that I happened across start talking about this idea of real estate syndication and for multifamily. And it just made a ton of sense to me. The barriers to entry into multifamily are higher which is kind of a paradox. If you can get in, it's great because you don't, you're not competing with as many people as maybe in the fix and flip world or, or some other lower barrier entry real estate paths. Not everybody can raise the capital needed for these type of projects. There's You're buying a business essentially. And so you've yeah. got room in your budget for repairs and maintenance and you actually can generate cash flow. You can't really generate cash flow in single family home investing, at least not in the markets that I live in or have knowledge of, you know, maybe in some areas in the Southeast you can, but that's just, I wasn't interested in being a, a remote real estate investor. So tax advantages, I mean, all the reasons that we like multifamily, us, your listeners, you know, the, the tried and true. So 
the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, was my wife got me Grant Cardone's 10X Rule for Christmas. Um, oh. And I read it Christmas afternoon. <laughs> and uh, I'm a little bit of a New Year's resolution guy. And so I had been thinking about it and I've been mulling over, hey, what are we going to try to accomplish in 2018? And then I read that book. And I think Christmas evening, I told my wife, we need to make the, one of our goals for 2018 and we're going to buy an apartment complex. And so she was down. She's very supportive in that way. And, uh, and so we put that, that was one of the goals that we put for 2018. And so from there, I just started, you know, what do I need to be able to do to close a deal? Begin with the end in mind. I think that's a, that's yeah. a personal mantra of mine. And so it was like, well, I need to have a good deal. How do I know if I have to figure out if I have a good deal, I need to be able to evaluate these things. And so I mm-hmm. just uh, decided to build my own underwriting model to kind wow. of teach myself the math behind it and make sure that I could discern why deals were good or why they were bad. And so I just started going on to LoopNet, which I had done enough research to know that I probably wasn't going to find a deal on LoopNet. But so I started out with the premise, I'm going to figure out why these deals are on LoopNet. Why is this deal not a good deal? And how could it be a good deal? Let's get creative Mm -hmm. and see if we can figure out what would make it a good deal in more of a theoretical abstract sort of sense. And so I probably, I spent a couple of months, two months maybe, underwriting 30, 40 deals to various levels and building my model. I don't use that model anymore, but it was a fantastic way to learn. How did you know how to build an underwriting model? How did you teach yourself? You know, it can be complicated. I mean, the debt structure, how did you know what returns made sense for investors? How did you educate yourself for building that model and, and knowing that you were doing it correctly? So there's a lot of paths that you can take. Um, and a lot of people will look for mentoring programs and things like that. Mm-hmm. For me, there's enough free content out there that if you're willing to consume a bunch in a pretty concentrated period of time, you can learn a lot of the general industry rule of thumbs, mm-hmm. um, at least for the, the portion of the commercial real estate investing pool that we all swim in, right? Where we're syndicating from more retail style investors. Mm-hmm. And so I had some background, you know, specifically in Excel building, not hyper complicated models, but some modeling and just started putting stuff together, kind of throwing stuff at a wall and, and okay. iterating and iterating. But really it was, I'm not going to focus on learning about property management right now. I need to know how to evaluate a deal. And so I'm only going to consume content that specifically helps me learn how to evaluate deals. And once I know how, once I feel like I have enough knowledge to be able to go do that, then I'm going to move to the next step in the sequence, which is building relationship with brokers and, and kind of just take a sequential approach and not try to learn everything all at once. Let's just focus on the first thing and then go from there. Yeah, I love that approach. That's really smart. So after you got some momentum looking at deals, what was the first one that you purchased? What did that look like? How did you find it? How did you know it was a good deal at that point? Yeah, so it was a 64-unit apartment complex in Colorado Springs. I landed on Colorado Springs as a market. It's about an hour and a half away from where I live. The cap rates at the time were about 75 basis points higher than they were in the Denver area. So you could get cash flow a little bit easier there. But the growth prospects for Colorado Springs then and now are really, really fantastic. Colorado Springs is going to overtake Denver as the largest city in Colorado by between 2040, 2050. Um, So it's got really good growth prospects. It's got a lot of military and defense 
hubs mm-hmm. there. Um, you've got the Air Force Academy. You've got Peterson Air Force Base, several other Air Force bases. You've got NORAD in the mountain, um, not too far away. A lot of space exploration and space defense contractors are based in the area. It's a big insurance hub, and it's a huge nonprofit hub. The USOC Olympic Committee has their headquarters there. Compassion International has their headquarters there. So it had a really diverse base of employers. And it just made a lot of sense. I wanted to be able to drive to where that first investment was. So 64 unit, it had been listed on a broker's website for over a year. As I took a look at the deal, I was like, I think this makes a lot of sense. They wanted seven and a half million. Why is this deal still available? So I talked to the broker about it. And he's like, oh, I've had this deal. You know, I think it's a fantastic deal. You get the broker spiel. And uh, then he's like, the guy is a little difficult. Oh, okay. Well, that ended up being a massive understatement. <laughs> we uh, So I found that deal in late March, 2018, and ended up uh, talking to my father-in-law and an uncle, neither of whom had multifamily investing experience. My uncle was in single family as a broker. And then my father-in-law worked in industrial construction. And I was like, hey, I have this idea what would you think about the three of us coming together doing being the GP? And then I think I could go raise the rest of the funds. But if it's the three of us and we add a little bit of gray hair to the equation, I, I think we could, uh, <laughs> we could solicit the funds we need. And so they were, they were game. Yeah. Um, and we ended up submitting a, a full price offer, actually 50,000 over. So 7.55 million in March. Well, the guy took two months just to respond. We didn't hear anything for two months. Wow. And it ended up the guy, the owner was a, an owner who was about 82, 83 years old. He is an attorney, had, was closing up his real estate practice. He had developed a ton of stuff in Colorado Springs. And this was the very first project he'd ever built. So it was built in 71 hmm. and he'd owned it ever since then. He had given it to his son who ended up running into substance abuse problems and the property had really deteriorated. He'd sold off his entire portfolio and was transitioning over to Florida. Hadn't lived in Colorado Springs for 20 years, but this was kind of something of sentimental value. And he was determined to win every single aspect of the deal. Wow. And so I just took that, the position that, hey, I'm going to outlast this guy <laughs> and not let his cantankerousness torpedo what looks to be a good deal. And like, mm-hmm. you know, the, everybody says your first deal is your hardest. The reason that this deal is still out there is because nobody could work with this guy. He'd been under right. contract multiple times and he was just very antagonistic. And so we just basically waited him out. We offered in March. It took until October to close. Wow. But part, uh, it actually ended up working in our favor. He didn't believe that we were going to close. He believed that he could either get us to flake out on the contract or that we weren't for real for one reason or another. And so he renovated 20 units while we were under contract, which is not something that you typically see. So 20 out of 64, that's a pretty big percentage. And so we were able to walk in to a, a property that was almost all on month-to-month leases with a bunch of newly renovated units that we didn't have to spend money on. And that just totally juiced our business plan. And so to bring that story full circle, you know, we ended up selling that asset in March of this year for 10.3 million and delivering about a 95% return for our investors. Nice. Congrats. How did you go about raising money for that deal? And and the long timeline is interesting. So if you went under contract, would you say March and and closed in October? How did you kind of uh, keep investor interest along that that journey? So we gave him an offer in March. We didn't actually go under contract till June. Took that long to get him to respond to us. Okay. So it wasn't quite as long maybe as it would appear, but uh, 
you know, we went out basically to my friends and family. So it was a pretty close circle of people. I think we ended up with 13 investors in that deal. Nice. Um, we needed to raise $2.1 million. And it was one of those things where I had conviction in the deal. And I think that's really important for your audience, for folks that are wanting to start as syndicators, they want to get in on the operator side. You have to have complete conviction. You have to believe when you're going out to your network that the deal is a good deal for your investor, that you want them to invest as a friend, as a family member, and not looking at it as them doing you a favor. Now, they certainly are by investing with you, and you want to maintain that grateful attitude, but you want them to invest on its own merits. And I think that was something that I was aiming at. And so I had that conviction in this deal, and that you know, was able to convince people to, I mean, we raised $2.1 million. It actually went a lot faster than I thought it would. We opened up our raise in the end of June and it took us about a week and a half to get all the commitments in. You know, it was a reaching out to people individually, sharing with them an idea, you know, talking them through the process. Nobody that had invested with me had ever invested in commercial real estate before. So it was a lot of missionary work. And then we ended up not taking capital until the beginning of October. We waited until we were very close to closing and then just did a capital call at that point. Got it. Nice. That's awesome. So how have things changed for you since then? Are you doing larger deals or what's kind of the company's strategy these days? Yeah. So I met my business partner, Whitney Sewell, another podcaster in the spring of 2019. So like at a quick, you know, one minute overview, decided after that first deal that, hey, maybe this there's a career in this. We should try to do it again. Started looking for a partner, met Whitney at a real estate conference. We really align on values, on vision, on abilities and skills. And so now I'm focused at LifeBridge Capital on acquisitions and asset management. So that's my lane. And then Whitney does a lot more operationally around capital raising and reaching out to investors and investor relations, all that sort of stuff. So in 2019, we did our first deal together, which was 180 units down in Colorado Springs. And then uh, we did four more transactions in 2020. Our investment thesis for 2020 was, hey, after we realized that COVID wasn't going to be a mass casualty event, we decided this is a temporary blip. Cap rates are frozen. Debt yields plummeted. And as a result, the spread widened between <laughs> cost of the funds and cap rates. So we bought everything we could lay our hands on. Oh, um, wow. All through COVID. All through COVID. Yeah. Yep. Nice. So we started offering on stuff in April and carried through. And it, it was interesting. I was totaling it up. We've been going through a BOV season. Um, so getting BOVs on all our assets. And you know, there's always, uh, you have to take it with a grain of salt, uh, but we put in, a, it was almost exactly 100 million in assets acquired in 2020. And we've seen between 55 and 60 million in appreciation on those assets. Wow. That's um, incredible. So pretty tremendous gain. Again, BOV. Um, one of those properties is actually under contract to sell. So we are going to realize some of those gains. And then this year, we've uh, continued to add value-add projects, both in Colorado, and then we're looking in Idaho, and we're actually dipping our toe into some development opportunities. So uh, Idaho has proven to be a really tough market to build out scale in the older product. Uh, mm -hmm. There's just not a lot of inventory, but it's a hyper-growth area. It's one of the fastest-growing areas in the entire country. And so we're exploring some development opportunities, both uh, on our own and then partnering with some developers to try to bolster our unit count in that market. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. That's amazing. Do you have any insight on, you know, you, it's, you guys did a lot in the past 12 months or 18 months or so. Do you have any insight from that journey as far as 
How you guys were able to go so fast, was it you know your ability to raise capital? Was it a, your ability to build a team around your company and what you guys were doing? Because a lot of people were on the sidelines during COVID. So what's kind of the, the number one thing that you know, that you can share with our listeners as far as insight for growing that quickly? Yeah, I think, I mean, part of it, I think, is the Lord blessing our business, ultimately. I think that that's a really important part that I want to make sure I acknowledge. I think beyond that, as to like practical steps that we could take or things that we did, I think just evaluating the marketplace. You know, a lot of people were worried during COVID. And the best time to invest is when blood is in the water, right? Now, everybody that takes guts to do that. You have to have a a real solid investment thesis. But our thesis essentially, like I shared earlier, debt rates have dropped, cap rates have frozen. This is a temporary situation. We did not foresee the tremendous growth in rents that we've seen nationally Mm -hmm. over the last 18 months. That was a little bit of a surprise to us. For us, it was more an opportunity to lock in long-term fixed rate debt on good assets and just plan to have a little bit of a longer term strategy that is evolving into what could be more of a short term strategy. We locked a sure. lot of debt in, you know, sub 3% interest rate, which is almost free money, especially with inflation where it is today. I think a big part of that is having a partnership that's really well aligned that can yeah. go out and execute. And so we're really focused at LifeBridge Capital. One of our core values is execution. We're not necessarily the smartest people around. We have not been in multifamily as long as many groups, but we're determined to execute as best as we possibly can. And so we really focus on building out processes that allow us to scale, you know, maybe beyond what our headcount would lead you to believe was possible um, mm-hmm. through leveraging technology, through making really strategic hires or strategic partnerships. I love it. Yeah, that's awesome. So when you connected with Whitney in the beginning, how did you guys kind of split up duties and decide who would be best doing what when you two partnered up? So Whitney is the host of the Real Estate Syndication Show, another podcast. And Mm -hmm. when I met, he'd been doing that for about a year. And so he was focused on raising money from investors, building an investor base, you know, creating content for people to consume. I really enjoy meeting with investors, speaking in front of groups of people, but I'm not as big on the content creation side. I really enjoy putting deals together. And so when we met, that was one of the things that was instantly attractive for both of us was that we had very complementary skill sets. And so for us, we kind of did Lincoln Springs, that first deal together on a trial basis. So that was led by my entity, VGI Capital at the time, and Whitney participated in some smaller ways. But it was pretty obvious almost immediately that we worked really well together. We had similar visions, and we could each go out and do our part of the process really, really well and trust that the other person was following alongside in their lane. And so we folded my entity into LifeBridge Capital. I'm a managing partner there now. And it really has been awesome to have somebody to provide accountability. You know, there's there's always this push pull in syndication. You've either got too much money or too many deals. You're always sure. fighting. You're you're trying to balance that. And so there's been times. The first six months of this year, we had more money than deals. Now we have more deals than money. And you're always trying to to balance that teeter totter. But being able to encourage one another, have a common faith foundation, has been huge for us. And then yeah, that that complementary skill set just makes makes it really easy for us to see each of our individual lanes and uh, remain faithful to those. Yeah. Nice. I love that. 
I want to go back to what you said just a minute ago about just your long-term strategy. You know, you were you were mentioning locking in long-term debt. You take maybe a little bit longer-term strategy than other syndicators. Are you underwriting to a five-year hold or longer than that when you when you go raise money? So it depends. We've had some assets where we do five-year plan. That's the pretty standard thing in the industry. Sure. We picked up a couple of assets that were more of a seven-year plan. They were newer builds in Idaho or one value add deal in Colorado Springs. Generally, I, I think we want to get to a place where we're buying nice assets, which can mean a lot of different things, but nicer assets that we want to hold for the longer term. The syndication model, you can divorce the interests of the LP and the GP if you're not careful. A lot of times when you're starting out, the GP is wanting to churn projects because you maybe you're not entering with you know seven-figure net worth and you want to realize those paydays. But a lot of times your LPs don't want to see that churn. They want to know that those gains are there. You're probably getting a healthy cash on cash. And it's going to be really hard for me to find a home for my money that's going to equal that rate of return. Mm -hmm. And so generally, if you look at the people who have done really, really well in real estate, they tend to not be transactional. They tend to buy and hold for the long term and identify core assets. And so that's you know, not our, our entire portfolio encompasses some things that we know we're going to trade out of pretty quickly. You know, mm-hmm. That was the business plan going in, but we want to be strategic and where we find the right opportunities, pick up some projects that will be in longer term. So we're raising for a fund right now, and that fund has a 10-year time horizon. And that's intentional because we're doing some development inside that fund. We want to be in the development in this growth path for a, a long period of time, realize as much gain as we can. And with the fund, have the flexibility of refinancing out, you know, potentially rolling that money forward, 1031ing inside of a fund. There's a lot mm-hmm. of things that you can do inside of that structure versus a single asset entity. It's that time of the show for a segment called Best Deal, Worst Deal, where we talk about real estate transactions that you've done in the past so that others can learn from your knowledge and expertise. So Sam, with that said, what's the best real estate deal that you've done? So Mark, the best deal that we've done, I'll highlight a deal called Stratus Apartment Homes. It's in Colorado Springs. Stratus was probably the most stressful deal to get closed that we ever had. So this deal, we started pursuing it in the fall of 2019. Broker comes to us, a 216 unit deal, value add, 70s construction. We submitted an offer at uh, 28 and a half million. Our property management partner, who we trust uh, greatly down in the springs, had managed that asset for 10 years and knew there was significant sewer problems there, that the sewer lines running from each building to the main had issues. And so we had budgeted for that in our offer. Broker comes back and says, Hey, you know, we're getting offers around 30 million. Can you come up at all? I said, no, we're stuck in it, staying at 28 and a half. Well, they go under contract at 30 and a half million. And during DD, first day of DD, they walk into the model unit and sewage had backed up into the mm. unit and they dropped out the next day. Wow. Uh, so the broker calls me back. He's like, hey, you know, everybody dropped out. You think you could come up to 29? And so I, I'd ran my numbers again. I was like, uh, the, the market had softened a little bit. The rental rates weren't pushing as fast in late fall 2019, I guess it would have been. Anyways, we dropped our offer to 28 and we ended up getting accepted. They were really nice. anxious to close. They wanted to unload this asset. They were tired of the problems. During DD, we ended up finding some foundation issues, negotiated a deduction. So we bought it for 27.6 million. The seller really drug their heels and we didn't close that deal till March 19th, 2020, which is the week that everything went yeah. nuts. Yep. And we were doing bridge debt. 
And so it was a really nerve wracking week. I was not aware until afterwards how close we came to not getting our loan funded. Wow. Um, we were the very last loan that this debt fund ever did. They left two other people at the closing table that day and wow. at least 20 other people that were in various stages of getting their loan approved and ended up going out of business two weeks later. Wow. We took over a property as COVID is spooling up that had uh, 20% vacancy. And then of, uh, of this 80% that were in, three quarters of them were paying, the other 25% were not. So our effective economic vacancy was at like 45, 50%. And this is pre-COVID. And you know, pretty significant sewer and structural issues that we had to address. So it was one of those where I was really glad we got it closed on March 20th. I woke up and I was simultaneously ecstatic and really scared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was in a fantastic location. It had a fantastic mix of units. And we just rolled up our sleeves and started getting to work. And in Colorado Springs, at least, everybody froze. All the offices closed for various multifamily properties, but people were still needing to come in. A lot of military folks were coming in. There was some other disruptions in the local marketplace that had more people than usual looking for a place to move into, even with COVID and everything that was going on in April, May. And so we ended up turning that property around and by end of June, we were completely full and we executed our value add plan. And then uh, we ended up uh, offering on a value add deal up near Vail this summer, and they needed somewhere to 1031 into. And so I said, well, here's uh, some information on one of our projects, Stratus, we take 48 million for it. And uh, they, this group didn't end up taking it, but a, the broker did what a broker does. They took that T12 and they circulated it to a couple of groups. And one of them brought us an off-market offer. I mean, we're under contract. We'll be closing here in a couple of weeks, just shy of 46 million. So we'll deliver you know, almost 20 million gain in 18 months on that wow. asset and north of a 2x return for our investors. So that's one of those deals that I don't know if we'll be able to repeat that in my real yeah. estate career, but it certainly has been a fun one from uh, you know the lowest of lows, thinking you might not get the loan closed to uh, flipping out of it 18 months later for a really meaningful gain for your investors. Yeah, I love it. That is awesome. Let's take COVID out of the equation, but it's still the property had... Sewer problems, low vacancy, low, you know, high delinquency. What advice would you have for other investors and operators to find that value and not be scared off by some of those problems? I think it really comes down to having the right property management partner and then mm -hmm. evaluating that and keeping them accountable. I'm amazed just in talking to various people how often syndicators we'll do like monthly calls with their asset, with their property management team. You've got to be making contact more consistently, especially mm -hmm. in the beginning. You've yep. got to have momentum on your side as soon as you hit the ground. And so finding that right partner, making sure that your actual leasing staff, the people that are on site are the right people for the job. You have to have the right mentality for a value add, especially when like this property had a few crime issues. It wasn't anything major, but there was some crime there. You had a, a population that was used to kind of getting away with a lot from the past terms. Mm. You need you need some people to come in who aren't afraid to rattle cages and yeah. see the bigger vision and aren't afraid to work pretty hard. And those people in the property management business, they just don't grow on trees. And so it took us some maneuvering and we went through some people to find that right mix. But once we found that and our regional manager was fantastic all the way along, that made all the difference in the world. I, I think it really does come down to the team that you can assemble to execute on the vision. Yeah, that's great advice. Sam, what would you say is the worst deal that you've done? The worst deal was probably the first deal, which was a success for our investors. So I don't have a, a horror story 
But something that was in common both with that first deal and our second deal is we just did not raise enough capital on the front side. We went in and we were just a little too skinny with our CapEx budget. And we learned from that and implemented some pretty drastic changes thereafter. But at the view at Chapel Hills, which is that 64 unit, we went in and we ended up having some unexpected foundation, not issues. It wasn't settling. There was just some leaks. So exterior water would flow through if we had a rainstorm and we ended up having some more significant pool issues than we had originally budgeted for. We were able to cover that, but it got a lot tighter than I liked, would have liked, mm-hmm. and it slowed down our renovation plan. So overall, if, if I had raised, we raised 2.1 million, if I had raised 2.3 million, wouldn't have made that big a difference either in the pro forma or the actual returns, but it would have made all the difference in the world. The speed that we could have executed on things and the number of units potentially we could have rehabbed and kind of the same thing with Lincoln Springs, our second project. And so we've got, I think the big takeaway for us was put your CapEx budget together you know, we have a much better idea of what things cost now. So that's sure. helpful. We have that historical knowledge. We pad that pretty significantly. And then we have an emergency on top of that. And then we add a safety factor on top of that. So we've got like three layers now. We try to bring at least six months worth of debt service and expenses just as reserves for nice. no, no purpose. They're just living there. That allowed us to pay out all our investor dividends through COVID and makes... It helps me sleep well at night. It it doesn't meaningfully lower returns to our investors. I mean, it certainly does. We're carrying more capital than maybe some other folks out there. But we've kind of taken the approach that, hey, we're going to focus on downside prevention. Um, And the number one reason that syndications fail is they're undercapitalized. So Mm -hmm. don't undercapitalize your deal. I'd rather take a 1% hit on IRR and have another 500,000 in the bank and just have that there as a safety net. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Well, Sam, thank you for being here today. Could you just real quick, we're a little bit short on time here, but could you walk the uh, listeners through your newsletter and what they can expect if they signed up for your newsletter that we spoke about a little while ago? Yeah, certainly. So I'm putting out a free newsletter on Substack. If you just search my name, Sam Rust on Substack, it's a monthly newsletter that's going to be coming out where we're covering a lot of economic topics. We're going to be talking a lot about inflation, the Evergrande crisis that's going on in China and how that might affect us over here in the United States. We've actually got a special update on that um, coming out here shortly. And then, uh, yeah, there's just a lot of current events. I find that investors really like our perspective as operators on what's going on and what we're paying attention to. And so it's just a path for me to communicate to the broader investment community and, uh, and share my two cents. Okay, awesome. And where can people go to connect with you or, or to sign up for that newsletter? Yeah, you can connect with me on LinkedIn or you can go to substack.com. That's a, a newsletter service and just search my name in the search bar and I'll come up as an author on there and uh, subscribe for free. Awesome. Well, thanks, Sam. Thanks for taking the time today. I really appreciate it and have a great rest of your day. Thanks for having me, Mark. Hey, everybody. It's Mark Allen Kenny. If you're interested in apartment building investments, schedule a call with me so we can have a chance to chat. My company is focused on growing your family's wealth with apartment building investments. So let's hop on a quick call and talk about your investment goals and see if we're a good fit. Find out more at StellarInvestmentGroup.com. Dot com.